On March 16, 2000, two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta. Jamil Alamine, a Muslim leader and former black power activist, was convicted. But the evidence was shaky, and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial. My name is Mosi Secret, and when I started investigating this case in my hometown, I uncovered a dark truth about America. From Tinderfoot TV, Campside Media, and iHeart Podcasts, Radical is available now. Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeart Radio app or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to The Dossier, presented by Metro by T-Mobile. Everyone knows about Suge Knight and Diddy. Would Biggie and Tupac be here if it wasn't for that day? It seems like they would be here, G, because that's the beginning of that fire. And when you start a fire, you know, and, and somebody gets some mouth to throw gas on it or kindle it, it's going to burn. A fire was started that day, and maybe nobody, you know, being that we all, you know, have our little sweet histories and, you know, black kids from the ghetto with this, you know, how it is, you know what I mean? You know, so I think all that negative energy that we just had, you know, growing up, we bringing it to our new business. But it was not the place for it. Previously on the dossier. Was his brother a contract killer? Is that was that true or was that something that was also made up? Well, he said it was true. Or that's how he met Amir, the Muslim friend with Mac and uh, Perez. So and he talked about that party that he met him at because his brother had been a paid killer as well. You know, Mike ran into those heavy circles. This is the Black Gorilla family uh, contact. Black Gorilla family is a prison gang that controls all Black street gangs, whether they're Crip or Blood. You are now listening to Episode 6 of The Dossier. Phil Carson and FBI informant, Psycho Mike Robinson. In the first five episodes of this podcast, you've heard information and evidence that shows that LAPD officers David Mack and Rafael Perez were involved in the murder of Biggie. FBI agent Phil Carson continues to break down piece by piece the evidence and information he gathered in his wide-ranging and calculated investigation into the widespread cover-up by the LAPD into the murder of Biggie. First, listen to Richard Valdemar, Psycho Mike's handler, discuss the role of Reggie Wright Jr. in the conspiracy to kill Biggie Smalls. Reggie was the head of security for Suge Knight at Death Row Records. And, and in putting it together, does that connect Reggie Wright and Suge to oh, yeah. Action? Perez. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And now Reggie's arrested. And I wonder if, you know, if anybody's going to ask him about it. I think we, at the time we arrested Suge, we had like eight unsolved murders connected to him. And it was Reggie the guy who did Suge's bidding, basically? Yeah. And this is, a, this is how it starts, right? Suge and other rapper label guys, rappers, needed security. And they tried to use a gang called Ludus Park. Uh, Suge was actually a mob pirate, remember, but Ludus Park Pyru provided most of the security. But they uh, they were ex-cons, and, and having guns got them in trouble. So he looked to the police, and they had contacts with the Compton police, so they wound up getting Reggie. And then Reggie hired a policeman uh, willing to do these jobs. Because, you know, these cops have to work with these rappers and they're using drugs and uh, carrying guns and doing violations of, of the law that these guys have to ignore. So what kind of cops are you going to get, right? So 
they, they wind up getting some LAPD, some Compton PD, and even a couple of sheriffs uh, to, to work with them on these jobs. Well, these guys win the favor of these rappers, and they wind up using drugs, have girlfriends and stuff that are uh, camp followers of the rappers. And then they're dirty. In any portion of Mike having this information, did the LAPD not want this information out, or did they not want to question him, or did they just... Yeah, they, they, they questioned him. They, they, uh, they talked to him, and then they wrote a memo, which I kept, which said that I said he was unreliable. The time that he was interviewed by LAPD, he was in the uh, Wayside Jail, protective custody part of the jail. And I arranged for uh, one of the uh, LAPD robbery homicide guys to come and talk to him. And before I took him in there, I told him, you know, when you talk to Mike, make sure you talk to him about what he knows. Because people on that role, protective custody role, they talk to each other about various cases that each one of them know parts of, right? So if he wasn't there, if he's not telling you about things he actually participated in, he might be repeating a story that he heard on the road from some other informant, right? Yeah. So that's what I told a, a homicide detective. But the homicide detective wrote a memo saying, I said that Mike was unreliable, which is absolutely not true. That memo you kept is an LAPD internal memo? Yes, report. And and in that report, they, they, they basically said that you said something that you didn't? Yes. They kind of and, twisted what I, what I said to make it sound like Mike was not reliable. And in, in talking to, to Michael, did he have specific stories about Mackin Perez, or was it more in regards to Amir Muhammad? Yeah, more, more about Amir uh, and Reggie and the dirty cops that worked for them. Uh, not specific on uh, Perez or Mackin. Got it. And so you admit, would you make the assumption that Reggie Wright had a relationship with Amir Muhammad? Absolutely. There was a small glitch in the audio, but let me be clear about what Richard just said. He stated that Reggie Wright Jr. had some kind of relationship with Amir Muhammad. Yeah, you know, I was involved in, in some of the cases, and I would we would talk about this stuff, but it was you don't build a case on just one informant statement. Yeah. So you needed corroborating information. A lot of the cases that we worked with were tangential. They were, they were not directly about that. They were about something else that happened, and they happened to dip into the should night stuff. You know, he's, he had an army of, of thugs and drug dealers and murderers working for him, so those separate issues drew us into that. I mean, he was a hero, in, in my opinion. He's a hard guy to work with. <laughs> Probably nobody else could work with him but me, but uh, he took chances he was a very brave guy. He wasn't afraid. People say, well, he didn't want to testify because he was afraid. He wasn't afraid. He didn't, he considered us dirty that we're, you know, unless he knew, had personal faith in you, he didn't believe the system was going to help him or, or protect him. He wasn't afraid. He wasn't just about afraid of nothing. 
We start doing the uh, the operation, putting together the operation of Psycho Mike to go meet with Amir uh, Muhammad. Again, why I don't know I did this, but my bosses appreciated it was, again, I reach out to Steve Katz and the Robbery Homicide Division asking them if they want to be part of the Psycho Mike operation to actually be there with me and Tim Flaherty while we send Psycho Mike in to meet Amir Muhammad. They say, no, we have no interest. I'm like, what? Seriously? He goes, this, this guy, if, if the interesting part is, Don, is if they, if they were part of my investigation and we were able to prove that Amir Muhammad or any other LAPD officers were not part of this, that, that takes a huge burden off their shoulder. But if, he, if these guys are part of this murder investigation, it's your job to look into it. But if you guys are telling me, when I say you guys, I'm saying LAPD and, and, and all the top brass there, if they're, if they're dead set on saying, Phil, we think you got your head up your ass. Why are you looking at our police department? Because we have nothing to do with it. Well, I'm thinking like, well, then great. Help me prove that you don't have anything to do with it. And this whole fucking case goes away and you guys don't have to worry about any of this stuff. But instead, they look at it as, no, he may be going down the right path here. So fuck him. Let's ruin him. Let's ruin this case. And let's try to shut everything down. They did not want to be part of the the operation where Psycho Mike went and met with Amir Muhammad. So I'm like, okay, fine. So I'm like, okay, fine. So I'm like, okay, fine. So literally a couple days before we're going down there, because we've got surveillance and everything going on, I get a call from, uh, I think it was Detective Katz. He says, hey. My bosses now are saying that uh, we want to be part of this operation. And I'm like, all right, well, hold on. Let me get back to you. So I go talk to Psycho Mike. And I ought to make sure that, again, making sure it's cool with him. He's like, you know what? Fuck those guys. They're involved in the, the killing of Biggie. He goes, you know what? You reached out to him the first time. He goes, I don't trust these guys. Why are they coming back right now? You know what? If they're part of this, I'm not part of it. I'm not doing it. I'm like, all right, cool. So I go to my bosses and I say, hey, this is what Psycho Mike's saying. LAPD can't be part of this. And there's like, fine. You gave them an opportunity months ago to be part of it. They gave you the middle finger. They didn't want to be part of this. So tell them, say, sorry, we'll brief you guys afterwards. So I go ahead and I tell them, sorry, guys, you can't be part of this operation. They went ballistic. And they were pissed off that now they want to be part of the of the Psycho Mike operation meeting with Amir and the FBI saying no. I make it very clear to them. If you guys have an issue with this, talk to my boss. Push comes to shove. I'm able to go down there with Psycho Mike. But one of the concessions was, is Phil, play ball with these guys a little bit. Give them a transmitter. Tell them to be a ways away so they can listen to Psycho Mike when he's engaging with, uh, with Amir. Take me through what happens when Psycho Mike goes to Amir Muhammad's door. Because I think there's been conflicting reports there's been stuff said by the LAPD of what happened you were there tell me exactly what happened when Psycho Mike goes to talk to Amir Muhammad what happens next the first time he went there um, Amir wasn't home and he talked to his wife Uh, short conversation asked when he would be back blah 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 now this is all on a wire it's all on a wire it's all recorded it's all made part of the case file and by the way when I had to give a transmitter 
to, I think it was Katz, that Steve Katz might have gone down there with, and there were a couple other LAPD detectives. I made sure that I gave them a transmitter and I put them in an area where I knew they would not be able to hear the transmission. Because it was like, screw you guys. You guys are doing nothing but causing me headaches when I'm, I'm trying to reach out to you guys to be part of this whole thing. It's like, fuck you guys then. So they couldn't listen to this in a timely fashion, so they couldn't possibly screw things up. Psycho Mike then finds out when Amir is going to be home and he goes up to the door and Amir comes to the door and they have about a, I don't know, 45 second minute conversation. And in that conversation, again, which is recorded, which is part of the case file, you can hear Psycho Mike saying like, hey, Amir, do you remember me? Remember my brother, blah, blah, blah. This is, you know, how I was introduced to you. And Psycho Mike starts talking about the Biggie Smalls murder. And, you know, there's rumors out there that that Amir is involved with it and he needs to talk to Amir because the feds are now trying to talk to Psycho Mike to get him to cooperate, trying to get Amir to not maybe a full confession, but to start talking about it. Amir doesn't he he just he doesn't say like. Who the fuck? What's going on here? You, You would think if some stranger came up to your door and knocked on it and said, Hey, Don, this is Phil. Um, remember that murder that we were involved in or that you committed? And uh, the feds are trying to get me to talk and dime you out or dime other people out there involved in it. We got to get our story straight. If you had nothing to do with it and you had no idea who I was, you were not going to sit there and have a conversation with a guy for one minute who's dressed like a gangster. And because and, and, understand, this isn't a nice neighborhood. You're going to say like, the fuck are you doing? the fuck get out of here? Get Who are you? What are you talking about? That's not what happened. They had a conversation and they talked and they said, okay, you know what? Yeah, let's go ahead and meet up at another time. Well, we end up sending Psycho Mike in a third time. The third time, he knocks on the door, like a roommate or a friend of Amir's was there, opens up the door and Psycho Mike asked for Amir and he said, no, he's, he's not here right now. And he goes, okay. He goes, have him give me a call. And Psycho Mike had written down his phone number and gave it to this guy, who then, obviously, based on what happened next, gave it to Amir. Well, Amir called the locals. A police officer showed up. He knocks on the door. And by the way, we're still there. And Psycho Mike is kind of in the area. I haven't had a chance to talk to Psycho Mike to get a full brief of everything that would happen, but I just listened to it real time, so I know... Not only did I know what happened in the previous conversation where they talked for a minute, but I know that that this guy said that that uh, Amir's not there. So the police officer knocks on the door, asks for Amir, and he says, "No, he's he's not here right now." Well, I come to find out because I went and talked to that police officer, Amir was hiding, and the police officer saw Amir because of the way the mirrors were inside the house. He could see him hiding behind like a wall or a closet door that had been opened up so Amir could kind of see or hear what was going on, but you couldn't directly see him by the door. After I had that conversation, Amir Muhammad goes down to the PD. He probably was fearing for his life, and he, he, he should, based on what Psycho Mike's history is, but more importantly, what Psycho Mike's brother's history was, and that relationship that he had with Amir, this, this should say this wouldn't be the first murder that is intertwined with all this. So Amir Muhammad goes down to the Chula Vista PD 
talks to a detective and that detective went and spoke to the police officer that, that responded to the call at Amir's house started trying to get some information and to make a long story short Amir provided the um, license plate to the PD down there and said hey because it was an it was an undercover car and he provided it to the PD and uh the PD down there then went ahead and ran it through their database and it didn't come back to anything. And because I told the PD down in Chula Vista what this operation was, play along with me here when you're talking with Amir. So they go back to Amir, who's waiting right there, and say, yeah, you know what? We ran this license plate. Um, it looks like that car had been recently purchased and it's in transition and we don't know who the car is registered to. Amir then says to the officer, you're fucking lying to me. I just called LAPD. I had somebody run the plate and you're fucking lying to me. And it's like, dude, you just you just gave yourself up right there. That's just So stupid. he said to the officer, yes. I called LAPD and had somebody run yes. the plate. And, and you're lying to me because you didn't run it. You didn't run it. You and that's documented. It. And that's documented. And that's documented. I didn't know that. Immerse yourself in the fascinating tale of Song of Solomon by the legendary Pulitzer Prize winning author, Toni Morrison, a mesmerizing coming of age masterpiece that has captivated readers around the world. Follow the protagonist, Milkman Dead, who was born shortly after a neighborhood eccentric hurled himself off a roof in a vain attempt at flight. For the rest of his life, Milkman too will be trying to fly. As Morrison follows Milkman on a quest to uncover his roots and himself in his Rust Belt hometown, to the place of his family's origins, she introduces an entire cast of strivers and seeresses, liars, and assassins, the inhabitants of a fully realized black world. As the New Yorker put it, Morrison moves easily in and out of the lives and thoughts of her characters, luxuriating in the diversity of circumstances and personality. Whether you're a seasoned reader or new to Toni Morrison, Song of Solomon is a must-read that will ignite your imagination and leave you wanting to read more Morrison. Song of Solomon, a timeless tale that will stay with you long after you've turned its final page. Available now at TonyMorrison.com and wherever books are sold. All right, so life doesn't happen bi-weekly, so why should Payday? The money you earn can be in your hands today with Earn In. Earn In is an app that gives you access to your pay as you work, up to $100 per day, or up to $750 per pay period. Just download the Earn In app and verify your paycheck. Then access up to 100 a day as you work and leave an optional tip. Any money you access plus tips are automatically repaid from your next paycheck. So maybe you need to get your kids something special or you and the wife Need a scintillating night out every once in a while, at least. So download Earn In Today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in the dossier under podcast. 
Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank. Subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com forward slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. The operation by Phil Carson to catch Amir Muhammad talking on a wire would set in motion a series of events where the upper management of the LAPD not only tried to stop Phil's investigation, they wanted to ruin his career. This is really where the cover-up to silence Phil started. I needed to talk to anyone who understood how powerful and sinister the LAPD at that time really was. When I die, fuck it, I want to go to hell. Because I'm a piece of shit, it ain't hard to fucking tell. It don't make sense going to heaven with the goody goodies dressed in white. I like black Tims and black hoodies. Gotta probably have me on some real strict shit. No sleeping all day, no getting my dick licked. Hanging with the goody goodies, lounging in paradise. Fuck that shit, I want to tote guns and shoot dice. All my life I've been considered as the worst. Lying to my mother, even stealing out a purse. Crime after crime, from drugs to extortion, to extortion, to extortion, to extortion. If there is any one individual who has seen the darkest secrets of the murder of Christopher Wallace and the inner workings, not only of the criminal investigation, but the intricacies of the civil trial, it is Sergio Robledo. I got to personally know Sergio and he became a sounding board to all the information I was digging up. Each day, I would call him and share a new piece of information. He was a savvy investigator who was not only beloved within the LAPD, he also ran an international private investigation business with high-level clients. If you needed information in dangerous areas across the world, Sergio and his company could dig it up. One of the last times I saw him, it was a Mexican restaurant in downtown Los Angeles. See, Sergio, as a former homicide investigator, knew how to not only solve murders, he knew how to methodically uncover the mistakes that were made by the LAPD. You think the protective order on the case, I'm sure there's hundreds of documents yeah. on the protective order. How am I going to remember what the hell's on there or not? Yeah. I mean, there's just no way. I mean, some of it I know about, some of it I don't, and that is true. Yeah. In terms of the fact that you, I mean, you're getting into the nitty-gritty of this thing. Because what you're getting into is the massiveness of the, of, I mean, the number of people that were involved in making sure that the system couldn't work. Yeah. Okay, you've heard of federal cases where there are U.S. attorneys that don't give up information that would have been critical to proving that somebody was innocent or guilty. Yeah. Because, because they're trying to protect their witness. Yep. And so in this case, the district attorney's office, which should have been the principal 
pillars of integrity uh, did not. Sergio had a lot of information and was a man who kept his cards close to his vest. He would periodically give me a new piece of information or slip me a document that he knew would help me. At the time, files involved in the case were under seal by a federal judge. A lot of answers were in those files, and Sergio had seen all of them. Sadly, in January of 2018, Sergio ended up in the hospital with pneumonia, and due to complications, he passed away. I felt like I not only lost a friend, I lost someone who cared about the truth in this case. Yeah, I mean, I think it's staggering that instead of looking into information, they were suppressing it. That's exactly right. And see, that's why Russ Poole became an object in the roadway that needed to be derailed and moved out of the way. And so Russ, bless his soul, I'm not saying that he's right. I'm not saying that the guy he said killed the guy is the right guy. That's not the point. The point is that when you take away the freedom to pursue justice, the first victim is justice. It's kind of sad in a way. I found myself this morning thinking about all this stuff, and it, 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 it sort of depressed me a little bit. Well, it should, because, uh, you know, and think about it. I mean, from my perspective, I, I, I worked my entire career I worked internal affairs. I did everything that I thought was the right thing to do in the right way. And for 99% of the people that I saw, they were trying to do the right thing, okay? There were some things that people that did wrong. There were some criminals in there. I arrested them personally. No big thing. I didn't even, I didn't skip a heartbeat. <laughs> and that's the way it should be to me. But then I find out about all this stuff because Russ came to me one day and with tears in his eyes told me this whole story. And, and, and I know Russ was an honest man. He may have been naive in terms of he didn't have to interview 15 witnesses, but he did because he was thorough. He didn't find anything more than the guy that only interviewed three but went to the right people. But that's not the point. He was thorough. He was honest. He was tenacious. And I knew that what I was receiving from him was honest. This information is important. Sergio worked with Russell Poole. He was his boss and his friend. He saw Russell's work on this case ruin him as a man. Russell Poole and Phil Carson saw a system inside the LAPD that went against who they were as men and cops. You know, I was the second person to receive the Rodney King tapes. And I remember taking it to one of the chiefs and and I said, Chief, you better sit down before you watch this. And so he says, why? This is a thing that was on TV last night and they just brought the tape in. And he says, well, put it on. Who had the camera? Where was the camera? Oh, my God, they caught this on camera. It was one of the most disturbing things uh, uh, that we'd seen on video. The videotape beating of Rodney King had left many Los Angeles residents outraged. 
it was like the first time we had actually seen it. So it was, it was shocking, but at the same time, it was wonderful because now we Americans, we African Americans, we had evidence of our claims of you know injustice and mistreatment. The idea of watching that that video originally. Give me your reaction to when you saw the Rodney King video. Give me what you felt initially. I was waiting for somebody to stop it. And the fact that no one came and no one was able to stop it. The Rodney King video in and of itself ignited a culture of wanting to get involved. Wanting to get involved. So he puts it on and this was a guy that was, you know, you're, you're, you're uh, about a mid-range Caucasian, okay? This guy is a white man. I mean, he's really white, bluish white, you know? But he was watching this, this video, and he turned blue, almost purple. And he fell in his chair, and he says, this is going to be worse than then to watch rise. And he was right. Yeah. And, and so I got to see all of them from a perspective of command. I got to see it from perspective of the truth, because the following day after the riots, I was put in Nickerson Gardens to control the stuff. <laughs> Get shot at and everything else down there, and uh, it was uh, so. I mean, you see the, the this terrible tape that was Rodney King. It's horrible. Very few people have seen the whole tape. It's four and a half minutes of acting. Yeah, it's horrible. It's horrible. And 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 anybody with any modicum of decency, you know, would be appalled by it. And so, <laughs> then to see the department, then, then to see the city fathers and everybody spank LAPD by calling, you know, all the reforms. And, and it was kind of interesting because when I was at, uh, I, I used to work at a company called Pearl. Do you know who they are? You might ask yourself what the Rodney King riots had to do with Biggie. This was a historical marker, a marker that would set in motion a chain of events that would define the relationship between the LAPD and minority communities. This is where respect was lost and the LAPD as an institution went down a dark path, a path that leads to Biggie's murder and the cover-up. Okay, well, I used to run their L.A. office, and Henry used to run the Western U.S. And it was Pearl that was assigned the monitor. Yeah, I read, I read that report. Well, I'm the one that, that went, I traveled to New York and met with Pratt and to talk to him about coming to do the monitorship. So, I mean, I've been involved in these things where, where these are all well-intended things. But in the middle of all that is... And, of course, I didn't know about it then with Biggie and Tupac. This is important. Sergio, more so than anyone, understood the bigger picture of power in the city of Los Angeles. Sergio is talking about a company named Kroll. He is talking about two vital things. Kroll is a private global security firm, a security firm where Bill Bratton, has had a long-standing relationship and has received money from. A dirty secret of high-level policing is that individuals like Bratton enrich themselves 
and their cronies when police departments go through massive scandals. At the time that Sergio is talking, the LAPD was being monitored by the Justice Department by a consent decree. In layman's terms, a consent decree is placed on a police department when the city and the police department cannot police themselves. And that's where it causes a real conflict in one's mind. It's real. See, and then, and then uh, Jimmy McDonald, who's the sheriff now of L.A. County, Jimmy McDonald was a guy that they used to they, that uh, used to oversee part of this stuff. All these command officers used to oversee this stuff. And so Jimmy McDonald was who Russ called to go and tell him about corruption in the sheriff's. And then, then, then uh, uh, Russ dies right there. But my understanding is that uh, uh, Dupree and uh, 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 that Compton Sergeant... Uh, Reggie Wright. Reggie Wright Sr. were there. Russell Poole had a heart attack inside an L.A. County Sheriff's Office in 2015. He died yet again trying to give information on the murders of Biggie and Tupac. His family knows that this case ruined him. It ruined his life. Uh, I mean, the perspective is that that Russ was told that Reggie Wright Sr. and Jr. were involved in drugs by, uh, I believe it was Kevin Hackey, I can't remember right now, I have to verify. Yeah. But uh, but Kevin Hackey's the one that told him about it. This was early on. Yeah. And so, uh, if they were involved in stuff then. Yeah, I mean, they they just got arrested on a federal indictment for dealing drugs from L.A. down in Memphis. You knew that, right? Yes, I knew that, and then I spoke to Dupree. I called Dupree to tell him about it. And here's the big thing for you, for your perspective, what Dupree told me. First of all, he was pissed that that I would dare to call. (laughs) So so he says, he, he says, so I said, so listen, I'm just trying to, wanted to see whether or not you, you were paying attention to the fact that they got arrested, see if whether or not something could be done. And so he says, those are good people. They got a piece of crap case on them, the ATF does. And uh, he says, and what's more, this case is solved. Everybody knows who did it. And he said, you do? You know who did it? He says, yeah, we talked to everybody that was involved in that. We know who did everything. And uh, I said, and and then he says, and and my partner, Kading, wrote a book on it. Darren Dupree was a member of the task force inside the LAPD that investigated the murder of Biggie. He was also partners with Greg Kading, who will become an important character in this story. Yeah, I said, oh, he did. So you talked to everybody that was involved in it. So you talked to that dead man? He said, no, I didn't talk to no dead man. So, But the issue is, 
He's saying that they've solved the case, but they can't file the case. If the case is solved, why is it still sealed? Unbelievable. There's a lot of stuff here, friend. It's unbelievable to me, this whole thing. What I don't understand is how the Bratton comes in in 2000 or something like that, right? Well, it was 2002. Yeah. There you go. And so he has no bone in the game except the political game. Yeah. He, he doesn't. He wasn't there. He he could have kissed off everything that Bernie Parks was doing and everything else, but he needed the support. And, and Bernie Parks represents the black community in many ways, many good ways. But in many other ways, he represented that which you know cover up everything. Don't let no 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 black person get in trouble type thing. That was making up for some of the sins of our fathers type thing. Poole, who resigned from the LAPD in 1999, says it's important to understand the historical context of this murder, beginning with the beating of Rodney King five years before, the riots that followed, and then in 1995, the criminal trial of O.J. Simpson. Poole says in this racially charged environment, the last thing the city wanted was a scandal involving the possibility that sworn minority officers could be involved in the assassination of a superstar rap artist. Wallace family attorneys say another Another reason for a possible LAPD cover-up is purely financial. They say then-LAPD officer Rafael Perez was on duty the night of the murder. If he was involved in it, it could potentially make the city liable for hundreds of millions of dollars in damages. And do you believe that the LAPD has tried to cover this up? I believe the leadership at the time that this occurred uh, took, went to great lengths to cover up and keep evidence away from uh, the district attorney's office and the FBI. Over the years, officers Perez and Mack have repeatedly said they had no involvement in the murder. The LAPD says it can't comment since the case is still under investigation, and sources tell us criminal investigators are now following up new leads in this 14-year murder investigation that so far has come up empty. I want something to be very clear. Three police chiefs within the LAPD covered up information that pertained to the Biggie murder. The three are Chief Bernard Parks, Chief Bill Bratton, and if you want to come present day, Police Chief Michael Moore now becomes a part of this cover-up by not allowing this case to be properly investigated by honest cops. What bothered me is, now here comes Bratton. He's coming out of the consent decree. Michael Cherkasky is supposed to know about the consent decree because he's the monitor. And they're having lunch together at the academy regularly. And they're, they're discussing what's going on. And all these reports, you, you can't tell me that they didn't advise him about the boy agony thing. But they made sure that that monitorship stayed only monitoring people at the lower levels. There was not, nothing above, you know, the actual process of the leadership of LAPD. And that, that's where I think this whole thing came from, you know, is, is that it's political in some ways. They were, they were going to take care of not going after, not to give the appearance of not going after 
uh, any any uh, black police officers or anything like that. At the same time, that was a way of making sure that Bernie Parks continued support for Bratton and other people because he has a lot of strength in the political process. But that's just speculation, obviously. And and uh, uh, but I, but I do believe that to be the case. And and, and Bratton, how the hell does he find out that people are? coming up and testifying and you got to understand how APD that stuff is reported up the chain of command it's not like other places where somebody knows about it and doesn't get reported up it just isn't that way so I, I mean I really see some some uh, very surprising to me that, that that would have happened now that it, now that you've uncovered boy I knew what you have and then the threats and oh my god why it, it even it even is 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 staggering to me that then on top of all of that you're allowing an LA Times journalist to report things that are not true and and almost use him as a pawn to disseminate false information. Next time on the dossier. This guy, Chuck Phillips from the L.A. Times, is calling me and he wants to talk to me about um, the feds and, and the ongoing Biggie Smalls investigation. And he's heard that we're doing an investigation. He just wants to kind of talk to me. And I haven't responded to him at all. The problem is, is this guy's relentless. He keeps calling and calling and calling. But let's be <clears> clear, <throat> though, and just correct me if I'm wrong as a journalist. The FBI, as standard practice on an open investigation, will not talk to the media. 